This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk, directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, we've got a great interview from the archives. Ron Stodgill, author of Where Everybody Looks Like Me, at the crossroads of America's black colleges and culture. Then PW News Director Rachel Deal previews PW's feature on diversity in publishing. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, which is powered by Nielsen BookScan. So uh, we've not got a lot on the fiction list, but we do have a new number one. Uh, the Clive Cussler and Justin Scott mm-hmm. collaboration, The Gangster. This is their ninth Isaac Bell adventure. And uh, we say that it's, it's thrilling. It's set in 1906, and it pits Bell, who's an operative in a detective agency, against an outwardly respectable New York businessman who is, in fact, a ruthless crime boss. So a nice classic storyline mm-hmm. there um, with kind of a, an early noir vibe, maybe. And uh, we say that the fascinating and suspenseful plot compensates for the thin characterizations. Mm. Uh, so that's at number one. Uh, at number eight is A Few of the Girls by Maeve Binchy. Um, I was astonished when I saw that on the list. Um, Binchy died several years ago, but uh, this is a collection of her short stories published posthumously, and uh, it's wonderful to oh, wow. to get one more book with her name on it. She's a right. very, very popular author of romances and women's fiction, um, right. a real pioneer in the genre. And uh, if if you think of sort of Daniel Steele years before there was a Daniel Steele, that was that was Maeve oh, Minchie. Wow. I grew up reading her books, so um, delightful to see her short stories uh, coming together in this collection, um, both from her early days of writing and toward the end of her career. And great to see it on the bestseller list. So. Yeah, definitely. Good. So that's a few of the girls, and it's at number eight. Um, moving down to number nineteen is Devonshire Scream. A tea Shop Mystery, the 17th in Laura Childs's Tea Shop Mystery series. Uh, it starts off with a bang, or rather a crash, um, when a truck smashes through the front window of a tea shop that's holding uh, an event, and uh, a gang of jewel thieves leaps out to commit a smash-and-grab robbery of the gems mm. that are on display. And uh, so lots of excitement happening from there. And uh, we say a charming cast of characters, a cultivated and genteel setting, plenty of tea and scones, a plausible <laughs> slate of suspects, and an exciting climactic chase in designer clothes and jewels, all add up to another enjoyable outing. So this Great. is probably mostly for fans of the series, but since they put it on the best list, it looks like there are lots of those fans. Yeah. And uh, then down at number 23, we have When Falcons Fall, 
That's surprisingly difficult to say. When falcons fall, when falcons fall, a Sebastian Sincere mystery uh, by C.S. Harris, and this is uh, Harris's eleventh whodunit set in Regency England, featuring nobleman Sebastian Sincere, uh, who is now this time traveling to Shropshire in 1813, um, and he has learned in a previous book that he was a bastard and met a man who may have been his half brother. So now there's a lot of family intrigue going on and uh, we say that the presence in the area of Napoleon Bonaparte's renegade brother um, so lots of family intrigue uh, enhances the intricate murder puzzle mm. and uh, I, you hear a lot about Regency romances less so about Regency mysteries uh, nice to see someone doing something a little different with right. that setting so uh, that's on our list at number 23 and that's pretty much it um, for the movement we do see a lot of big bumps on the list for mm -hmm. Uh, tie-ins for movies um, and uh, our friend Carolyn Juris pointed out a few of those to us the the Oscar bump is happening for uh, all the tie-ins uh, in mostly in trade paper um, so the Revenant tie-in is up 23% the room tie trade paper and uh, the trade paper tie-in are both up quite a lot right um, I mean we're talking about selling thousands of extra copies just yeah. based on being mentioned at the Oscars the Danish girl tie-in um, the big short trade paper tie-in so uh, lots of lots of stuff going on for movie aficionados and people interested in the books that movies come from right. or the books that are made from movies but uh, in original fiction not a whole lot yeah and of course there was also Brooklyn which didn't get any nominations but that is still up too mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so so jumping off of let's say the big short uh, non-fiction let's move to non-fiction and what I'm seeing are uh, just generally uh, books on self-development, self-awareness. Hmm. And uh, what we have here, number two is a high, our highest debut. Uh, it's called Living Forward, A Proven Plan to Stop Drifting and Get the Life You Want by Michael Hyatt. And uh, here we don't have a PW review of this, but I'll read just a little bit from Goodreads. Each of us has but one life to live on this earth. What we do with it is our choice. Are we drifting through it as spectators or reacting to our circumstances when necessary? So that that's at number two. Uh, the next one is unqualified how god uses broken people to do big things the tag for this is who you think you are is not as important as who god says you are so that's at number four a lot of people are drawn to that number 11 let's go to self-help but in the diet and fitness category this is the stash plan 21 days to a stronger healthier fat burning new you and this is by laura prepon and elizabeth troy laura is the star of orange is the new black and troy is the nutritionist so here we've got some good nutrition from a tv celebrity person so she was also in that 70s show laura propon was mm -hmm. i remember that's what i remember her from and then we have another one at number 12 the quick six fix 100 no fuss full flavor recipes six ingredients six minutes prep six minutes cleanup so we're doing all of that in 18 minutes that, that's verging perilously close to the 666 cookbook but oh my goodness maybe that title that? was turned Ooh, right 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 <laughs> exactly <laughs> oh, 
there's still sixes in there. Okay. okay. We will not say anything more than that, but it's out there. So this is from Stuart O'Keefe. And then moving on, we have a review of Evicted Poverty and Profit in the American City. And this is by Matthew Desmond Crown. This is at number 13. And Desmond is a MacArthur. uh, He won the MacArthur Award. Uh, He's a Harvard sociologist. And we hear, say in our review, gripping storytelling and meticulous research undergird this outstanding ethnographic study in which Desmond, an associate professor of sociology at Harvard, explores the impact of eviction on poverty-stricken families in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So, in the end, Desmond identifies affordable housing as a leading social justice issue of our time and offers concrete solutions to the crisis. So, that's at number 13, uh, MacArthur, and now bestseller. Then it's kind of interesting. In number 15, we have a, a book is called Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. All right. May not seem like a, a best-selling title. Yeah, I was, so, I was wondering about that. And, and then it's written by Carlo Rovelli, who is an Italian physicist. And it's a, a book in translation. So we don't often see books in translation, it's especially in the nonfiction. It's by, uh, uh, translated by Simon Carnell and Erica Segre. Uh, Riverhead's publishing this. And in our review, we say this enchanting book from Rovelli, an Italian theoretical physicist, uh, looks at physics as a continually changing quest for understanding our universe instead of as immutable laws of nature. We've been seeing and we will continue to see, I've been looking down the next few weeks, books on physics and explaining life through physics, explaining sports through physics, explaining culture through physics. So, Yeah, I just, I, we just uh, edited a review that's oh. going to run in the next week or two uh, about physics and jazz. So um, it's, it's really it's, it's really everywhere. Music. Yeah. Well, we're going to, let's pay attention to physics. Yeah, I, th- I think it's very interesting. Do you think it's the, the gravity waves detection that's got people outside of the, the physics world trying to figure out what the big fuss is? Or is it just an idea whose time has come? I think it's an idea whose time has come. I mean, and I think I, I think we've seen it in various sciences looking at things. Uh, and and we, we've talked about how the brain reacts to certain things. And mm. then this is now looking looking at numbers and, and what what it does and how it resonates with us through math or through physics as it were well uh, that's fascinating we'll definitely keep an eye on that track. yeah and then finally i just wanted to mention number 24 the immortal irishman the irish revolutionary who became an american hero by author timothy egan uh those who have heard we say in our review of thomas francis uh, meager will likely know him as a union general in the civil war but Egan, who wrote The Big Burn, who is also a National Book Award winner, uh, moves meager convincingly into the ranks of patriots of both the U.S. and Ireland. With novelistic skill, Egan fashions a dizzying tableau of the life of his restless subject. Looks pretty good. Yeah, I remember editing that review and thinking ah, right. it sounded fascinating. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, great to see that it's getting some traction. Great. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, an archive interview with Ron Stodgill on historically black colleges and universities. We'll be right back. I'm Lee Eisenberg, author of The Point Is, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Ron Stodgill on the line. His new book is Where Everybody Looks Like Me, at the crossroads of America's black colleges and culture. Hi, Ron. So glad you could join us. Oh, thank you, Rose and Mark. I appreciate it. 
So you teach at Johnson C. Smith University, which is an historically black university in North Carolina. Was there an event that made you decide to write this book? Well, I can't say that there was anything, you know, apocalyptic that happened that, that spurred the book, but I can say that having spent a career as a journalist and um, working in national and um, local newspapers and magazines, you know, I'm always looking for the story. And I left the newsroom um, maybe three years ago and took a role as a professor here at uh, Johnson C. Smith. And, you know, it was very clear to me that these uh, institutions, which I knew something about, although I did not attend um, a historically black college, you know, but my folks all did. I mean, you talk about any sort of educated person born, you know, prior to 1968, you know, probably attended one. And we owe much of our middle classness, you know, certain families to this group of people. Mine actually went to Tennessee State in Nashville, you know, and migrated um, north to, um, you know, work there. That's my grandmother, particularly as a school teacher, you know, in Detroit. And so, you know, and I have a long, um, you know, a lineage of, of, of um, Tennessee State Tigers in my, in my family. So coming here, you know, I, I, I understood a little bit about the romance of these schools, but I could also see that they were um, kind of becoming uh, what would I, like skeletons of their former self. That, to me, um, started with the makings of something that just has intrigued me to write about. So tell us a little bit about this this skeleton image, um, which is fascinating. These colleges and universities, some of them have been around for a very long time, existing in in kind of much the same way. What's happening now? What's different now? Well, I mean, you got to, you know, these schools were, were founded, you know, right around um, the, at the, you know, end of the, the post-Civil War schools, really, and they were uh, founded by mostly, you know, white missionaries and philanthropists to to educate freed slaves, you know. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, and they sort of started to blossom over time through that century. And, and, and uh, so some of them are about 150 uh, years old, you know. Um, and uh, they were the institutions that were kind of the the bedrock of, of, you know, American or African-American education, you know, the passport to freedom. And so, you know, they educated a, a Booker T. Washington, a Martin Luther King Jr., a Thurgood Marshall, even an Oprah Winfrey and a, and a Spike Lee, you know. Um, so they are the, um, you know, the, the sort of go-to for, for for black education and and and, and uh, throughout the century, and so today you're just seeing, you know, along with higher ed generally, which are all sort of taking a hit. But these schools, with that unique mission of, of, of educating uh, first generation, um, you know, um, black um, people, first generation college, black um, citizens, you know, they have been. So, you know, integration is one trend that's, that's hurt them. And in a, in a way, you know, the irony is you could say, like, well, if the schools really, really did well, 
that they would kind of put themselves out of business eventually. So, you know, you have more and more um, blacks that 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 can go anywhere to school now that you know the, um, now that uh, you know segregation is over, so, so to speak. You know, they can go. They don't have to go to to uh, you know Morehouse or Fisk. They can go to Princeton or University of Michigan or, you know, they have options. And then you've got, um, you know, movement in, in Washington and even under, you know, ironically, you know, under President Obama of just sort of cost cutting at the federal level or, 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 or be holding schools more accountable for the funds that they do receive. And um, so there's been that. There's the changes in the credit standards from which, you know, that all kind of was tied into the implosion of the, 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 the banking crisis, right? And and they changed, the banks changed the credit standards and that disproportionately hit um, families, you know, of, of lower income families of African-American descent. So suddenly, you know, the school, these kids that have been, you know, getting these, this financial aid couldn't afford to go anymore. So that's another um um, thing. And then you just had other stuff that they could just do better, like just supporting their own schools, um, you know, through just alumni support. So, you know, you've got a, a, a kind of, um, no, I mean, I failed to mention just on a state level, state government level, you know, because half of the schools probably, almost roughly half are private and then roughly half are public. So the public ones, you know, they have this, there is this sense of, like, why do we need these schools? And if you're not going to be competitive, you know, if you're not, you know, if you don't have any real economy to scale and we already have these mainstream institutions, let's consolidate you, you know, consolidate the three or four that exist in the state, you know, or if you, or, or, or better, or fold them into the main, and fold them into the predominantly white schools or just, you know, if you're really not competitive, just let it sort of, you know, atrophy and, and, and die and shut it down. So I wanted to ask you, you, you you've been talking about the uh, the decline of these schools and, and have given a lot of very good reasons. But I, I want to get a feeling as to how many historically black colleges and universities they, there are. And are they mostly located in the South? Tell us a little bit about them. Sure, sure. Um, there, there are about 105 of them, right? And you're absolutely right. They are located in the south, uh, predominantly southeast. But they probably, you know, they're as far north as like Pennsylvania, and they stretch out as far west as say, I think there's one in um, in in Oklahoma. Um, and there, you know, a couple of them in Texas, but most of them are in, you know, Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi and the Carolinas. Yeah, yeah, in Florida. In Florida, um, and they're all, you know, and they're all there. You know, they're graduate. There's some graduate programs. You know, there's really not a monolith. And even though I'm talking about them in, in, in somewhat generalizations. You know, there's theological schools. You know, there's you know there's they're under there. There's private. Some of them are uh, open access, so to speak, and some of them are highly selective. You know, um, and as I mentioned, some private, others public. 
You had also mentioned something interesting uh, about one of the reasons why enrollment is down is dropping and and you were saying that the cuts to funding so uh you had mentioned that it was basically first generation kids going to college um from from possibly poor lower income families who were going there and who were being hit by this are, are there still a, a, a sizable number of say middle class upper upper middle class african american families applying and attending Oh, wow. Yeah. You know what? One of the things that just was really cool about the research is that, you know, the legacy family that just are committed to the school, there is this sense and it's a misnomer, you know, that um, that to go to these schools simply means that you can't afford to go somewhere else or that you weren't competitive enough academically to go somewhere else. And that is just not true. You know, there are so many people who are fit. Like, I mean, even Dr. King, when he went to Morehouse College and graduated, he was, I think as a freshman, he was sort of like third generation, third or fourth generation Morehouse on his mother's side, you know? And so, you know, there are, um, one of the stories I tell is about a woman. Um, it, it's really about, um, in the story, one of the narratives is about kind of a, a, as a trustee at Howard University named Renee Higginbotham Brooks and her sort of crusade to to push out the president who she thought was doing a really poor job, um, Sidney Rabot, and her kind of, uh, her, her rogue journey into doing that. And, and part of her motivation was she was a Howard graduate. There's so many families and, you know, um, so many people in her family that are Howard graduates and just, and historically black colleges generally. And she just was afraid to see her, you know, um, her, her alma mater just sort of um, what she felt was sort of being poorly managed and, and led. And so, um, and she is, you know, not kind of a, a statistical outlier, you know, she is part of a, a real core group that keep these, these institutions sort of vital and proud. Yeah. So you interviewed quite a lot of people's professors, students. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the other folks you interviewed, like uh, Savannah Bowen, who is a student athlete. Um, at, uh, yes, yes. I I tried to sort of offer a, a real um, eclectic mix of of people that make this community that make up this community and uh, and tell different types of stories that I think are urgent for right now. So I just mentioned Renee because she was part of a kind of push to reinvent these schools and, and, and asked the tough questions and she went up against the old boys, you know, in order to, to, to make it happen. And she went up against the board chair, you know, Barry Rand, who had run Xerox and AARP and, you know, and, and Avis, you know, top, top executive. It was a, a really formidable rival in that. But um, she became kind of his, you know, uh, a, a real, real, um, you know, foe of his, but, you know, yes. And then you have go drop down to a young, you know, Savannah Bowen who had come up, you know, um, dad, a doctor, you know, both parents in, in, in medicine and grew up in an affluent uh, area in Westchester County 
and wound up, uh, you know, and was recruited by all the top white schools, you know, um, but in the end chose Howard, which was her dad's alma mater. But, you know, the turning point happened. You know, she grew up around all whites, but the turning point happened in during her senior year and when she got her first black teacher, mm. you know, and that teacher was trying to, was teaching, you know, like Toni Morrison's Beloved and, um, and, and, and a few other black, um, novelists, you know, that was just sort of what she was covering during the scope of the, the class. And she found, like, it started this, it triggered all of these awkward feelings with her white classmates because she found that they, or she, that they kind of resented taking the course, you know, that they were, or, or covering that sort of black, um, cultural, you know, um, um, you know, black literature, you know, that they, that they were bored, that they were dismissive. And I think she resented it because she was found it to be absolutely compelling because it spoke to her personally. And so it's about, you know, that is about her journey, you know, to sort of say, okay, you know, well, maybe I'm not going to follow you all to these schools. Maybe there's something, you know, else in my development that I want to go touch. And so she wound up at Howard. And then I have, you know, everybody in the book is not black, though. Like, I have some very cool stories about a woman who's an event planner in Baton, in not Baton Rouge, in New Orleans, who now runs, which is, it's the Bayou Classic, which is a Thanksgiving Day annual football game between Grambling and Southern. And it's been going on forever, and it's super popular, but it got very dusty and tired and folks just stopped going for a number of reasons right and so she was brought in to sort of rejuvenate it because she's very good at her job but you know as a white woman taking on this black classic you know she found herself sort of struggling you know uh, when you know blacks resent her because they don't feel like she understands the culture and how she sort of got the steering wheel of this big classic and then you've got you know, um, white folks that she's trying now to sort of get interested in this and plug in, and they're looking at her like, you know, sideways. So I find her story to be powerful. You know, I've got, um, you know, the 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 chair of, uh, or the, the presidents of a couple of, you know, several universities sort of talking about their various challenges, Um whether it was a big, bold move like Beverly Tatum, who ran uh, Spelman College, who looked at, at, at her car. And it's an elite school. You know, Spelman is right up there with Morehouse and and Howard and uh, and Hampton, you know, and Tuskegee. Those are some sort of big kind of sterling names. But she um, she shut down the athletic program because she just needed cost-cutting measures. She looked at the school. I mean, at the school. At, at how many students were participating in it, you know, and she thought, we spend a million dollars on sports, but, you know, the school is small, um, and they're not, you know, and, and they're not going to wind up going pro, and they're not going to wind up, you know, and very few students really participate in it. You know, they're uh, we're not that competitive. And so, you know, why not just cut this and just, like, you know, why not do a wellness center? You know, the the, the average um, female here is going to wind up doing Pilates and yoga and stuff like that. 
And so, you know, it was a pretty bold move. And she saved money, and I think she's really tailored the product to the reality of the, of the young women's lives. That, coincidentally, is the school that Bill Cosby, you know, um, had given um, $20 million. Bill and Camille Cosby had given $20 million to that school, um, you know, and endowed it back in the late 80s. They recently um, gave that money back because of the Bill Cosby, um, you know, scandal and all of the, you know, the just negative um, attention he has gotten. And, and, and I spoke, spent a time with him. I really struggled with what to do with the Bill Cosby stuff, you know, because I did spend a lot of time talking to him prior to all of this, you know, these revelations. And he's such a, um, he's, he's been such a champion of these schools, you know, um, you know, he's given his money and his time and, uh, you know, even his pop kind of, uh, you know, sizzle through, you know, the television show, uh, that became a, a big hit. I grew up on the show, uh, a different world, which takes place at a fictitious, you know, um, HBCU, uh, Hillman college. And, um, you know, that show really spiked the numbers on people of, of, of people of color who wanted to even go to these black colleges. Um, and so, you know, but then you kind of, um, you know, weigh that against what what those allegations are. And even in, in, in his own admissions, um, you know, and, 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 and I had a tough, tough call, but I decided to, that I couldn't revise that history that he's in it and um, you know he's played, he had a, an important role in it we're going to take a quick break but don't go away book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio now on iHeartRadio.com PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Ron Stodgill, author of Where Everybody Looks Like Me, who's telling us about some fascinating research he did for this book on historically black colleges and universities. So as a professor at an HBCU, are there ways that you can teach there that you couldn't elsewhere? What's the benefit for you being on the the professorial side of things? Sure. I mean, you know, I think like I remember one day I sat down with another professor because we had um, we both knew a, a, a particular student, and we thought that, that student, you know, had been a little more like just sort of disconnected of late. And so we sat down and we had a discussion about this student, and we, um, and I think we must have spent forty five, fifty minutes talking about the, their works, and talking about their future, and talking about what we knew about what they were going through. And it hit me after that conversation, you know, that I can't, I went to, you know, University of Missouri, um, Columbia, and while I loved it and got a lot out of it, you know, I don't think that anybody sat down in all four years, I would doubt that sort of 50 minutes or an hour 
of just Ron time. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and I think that that is one of the benefits, you know, of these, these, these um, of coming here is that at a very, very critical point in your development where, you know, one wrong move can just take you so far left or right, you know, um, that, that you have someone watching pretty closely and that, that nurturing, I think is, is, can be an important, uh, element as you, as you leave high school, you know, um, I have three sons, my, um, and my, uh, oldest, you know, just went off to, to college. He's 18. He did not go to an HBCU, although I took him shopping. You know, mm-hmm. he went to Howard and he went to North Carolina um, Central and A&T and he took some looks, but he just in the end didn't choose one. But, you know, I worry, I worry about him. He, has, he is at a small uh, liberal arts school in North Carolina, but I worried about that transition you know, of of him going and making the wrong mistake that he can't, um, you know, that he can't recover from and that it happens in sort of obscurity, you know, without anyone that feels like they can just reach out to me directly. So these schools do kind of take pride in, in, in a family, a family atmosphere. And I've seen it played out. I mean, it's very real, you know, um, in 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 um, you know what ends up happening is you've got all these ambitious people, you know, that show up at 18 and they get to know one another, and so now they leave at 21, and by the time they're sort of like in their late 30s or 40s, if things have worked out, they're doing very well in their careers, you know, and so you know, and they're all over the country, and so you know, rather than come in, go somewhere and kind of fight it out. You know, and you you already got this little connection, you know, and 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 a common sort of family ethic, and they look out for one another. So you know, those relationships that are formed there start, you know, and it goes through, you know, weddings. And it, I mean, I'm sure it's the same thing as in mainstream culture. It's just a little niche. It's a little niche that is is. That you know is um, gives per- a person a whole a whole life, but there's an academic, you know, professional sort of part of that that that's powerful and that you know and that um, is is contagious. So, what do you see as the future of of the HBCU? I mean, how, how do you think HBCUs will need to change uh, to stay vibrant and viable? Well, I think that, you know, that, that many of them are, are already vibrant and, and, and viable. Um, but I do think that, um, that you know, some reinventing is going to be necessary. I think that, first of all, they're going to have to start really looking at funding themselves and having the people, um, you know, that went there give back in a more generous way. You know, um, they're going to have to truly, truly um, carry more weight on, on, on the giving end. Um, you know, I also think that, you know, that, that, that on a customer service level, you know, they've uh, often, you know, the students have been left wanting, you know, in terms of the, the efficiency of, of, of registering and just sort of like the whole business side 
of these schools, which has a direct connection actually to the giving portion. Because if you're experienced in sort of how it was managed and they managed your money and resources and things like that while you were at school, if that memory is sort of tainted, then you're less likely, no matter how much you love them, to sort of trust them but with your with the resources when you start making them. You know, I think they'll probably also have to start kind of doing more with um with, you know, online learning and figuring out a way to um, you know, where appropriate to to do that, um, and take advantage of the kind of digital era, technological era we, we live in. And I think ultimately to take a really hard look at at like consolidating at, in certain cases and, and just, you know, enjoying some economies of scale and, 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 and turning some of these schools maybe into centers of excellence that, you know, one giant, you know, of, of, a, of an umbrella, you know, and, and smaller satellite campuses so that the Davids can compete against the Goliaths, right? I have a question. What is the percentage of non-black students who who attend these colleges or universities? It's it's really um, it's still mostly under ten percent, but it is growing. You know, I mean that is a is a very very good point, um, Mark. That 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 one of the strategies is to start opening doors up to other students. You know. Um, that are not descendants of, of, of slaves, you know, which had always been the mission of the HBCU. I mean, here at Johnson C. Smith, you know, we have more and more we have, and, 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 and I'm very close to many of them. We have a lot of students from South Africa. We have, um, you know, one in particular who's uh, very a favorite of mine, who was, uh, and she's in the book, Lillian, um, who is, um, you know, an aspiring dentist, but she's a Rwandan refugee, you know. Um, we have many from, from, from um, you know, the, that, that are West Indian. Uh, and so um, more and more, you know, it, 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 it's one way to attract a different, a, a different pool of students, you know, and, and bring them up because it's in fact, it's in fact, you know, the the top-notch high school, you know, black high school graduate can now go to Harvard or Yale, and he's being recruited heavily by these schools, and these schools have the resources in which to court him. You know, so that leaves kind of a, that brain drain, if you will, leads to, you know, this sort of gap, you know, a performance gap. So how do you fill that? And so in a lot of ways, you know, these schools are filling it with really talented international students. Um, and so, you know, that is a that is a trend. And more Latino students here on, on Johnson C. Smith. And it's created a rich, diverse, more diverse environment, you know. But the rub, though, obviously, is that you still have an African-American, you know, student who, who, um, um, you know, who, and there's a lot of work left to do with that first generation, uh, you know, um, um, African American student as well. And, 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 and so, you know, are they being kind of, are their needs now being, you know, neglected as you, you know, scurry to figure out, um, another kind of core 
customer, if you will. I was wondering about that, too, because every time you say first generation, I automatically complete it with immigrant because that's that's the uh, context in which I'm used to hearing the term first generation, these first generation immigrants to the U.S. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so uh, it sounds like that's a very natural direction for the HBCUs to go in. Yeah, I mean, that is that that is kind of the secret sauce, if you will, you know, at the schools is the conceit, you know, that they can come in and take these students who, you know, who don't come at, from any privilege, you know, um, and, and, and whose, you know, sort of ancestors were not um, uh, formally educated. And yet, you know, within four years, they can have them ready for the workplace. Or, or graduate school, and they've done that over and again, and and they, so they're the, that the competency of these schools, and so absolutely, you know, can, does that is that a transferable skill, you know, um, uh, to to help them become competitive? Yeah, I, I see it happening right now. Mm-hmm. We've been talking with Ron Stodgill, and you can find his book, Where Everybody Looks Like Me, in stores right now. Ron, thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rose, and thank you, Mark. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW News Director Rachel Deal talks about the challenge of making the publishing industry more diverse. Stay tuned. I'm Dookie Hong. And I'm Matt Rodbard. We're the authors of Koreatown, a cookbook, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW News Director Rachel Deal is here to tell us all about demographics of the publishing industry. Hello, Rachel. Hi, how are you guys? Great, good, great good. to see you. So um, tell us a little bit about this upcoming feature that we're doing on diversity and publishing. There are a lot of different approaches one can take to the topic. What's right. ours? Um, so we've, I think we've been wanting to cover uh, the topic for a little while. Um, basically what, what happened was we published uh, last year a salary survey. And in that salary survey, we included... Um, some information about the respondents, some demographic information, among other things. And one of the things that we found that we sort of uh, noted um, emphatically was that 80% of the respondents identified as white. And after that came out, um, you know, it sort of raised some eyebrows to, um, in addition to some some stories, there was a, a much, a much more... Um, it's a much wider survey done by Jason Lee um, at Lee and Lowe Books called the um, Diversity Baseline Survey, which indicated that this, the statistics we had were pretty close. Um, I think mm-hmm. a little, little uh, under 80% and um, the industry was white. And he also had in that survey um, a lot of uh, more specific information about the demographic break- breakdown of the industry um, according uh, along gender lines. Um, and uh, and disability and various other things. So what we wanted to do is sort of look at um, why the industry hasn't seemed to have changed much. Um, we actually did a story in 1994 um, called 
houses with no doors. And uh, Calvin Reed, uh, our my colleague, our colleague, uh, wrote this story. And that was sort of focused on um, race in the industry and sort of why, again, the industry sort of was predominantly white. So working off of that story and sort of re- looking at some of the um, the coverage that's that's sort of cropped up of late of the industry, we wanted to kind of get a sense of why so little has changed, focusing on hiring and focusing on um, the racial makeup of people who work in the industry. And and we really focused, um, you know, the industry is a pretty nebulous term. So, you know, for some people, it includes, you know, everything from the media to uh, to booksellers to basically everybody working across the industry, we really focused it more on um, the publishing houses themselves. Mm -hmm. And we also focused on uh, the big five, sort of looking at their, the programs they have and really focused on their hiring practices um, and what seems to be going on there in terms of um, why there doesn't seem to have been as much movement as people seem, as people say they would like. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because the reality is, even I think outside of that statistic, one thing that sticks out in publishing is, I don't know if they use this term a lot, but um, we have, you know, the eye test. And I certainly know in when I think about publishing and you look around and you look at sort of the New York City publishing scene, it's very white. I mean, I, I can kind of count on one hand the people I know yeah. in the industry who are non-white. So I think aside from just the statistics, you know, it's something people are unhappy about, uncomfortable with, but I don't know that people know sort of how best to change it. And so we talked to over 40 people. We didn't just talk to people at the Big Five, but um, we did focus on, again, what they're doing there. Um, we talked to people who work in human resources, and you know, we talked to people across the industry. We talked to some people outside of the industry, too, about what seems to not be working and, and potentially how we can, how we can change things. So I've got a question. What was it that Calvin wrote about nearly 20 years ago? I mean, I'm I'm curious to to hear what topics are still relevant, how exactly it has not changed. I mean, I you know, I think the 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 story that he wrote, it actually touched on the fact that at the time, um, you know, there was information that was being released by the Census Bureau at not specifically, I think it was called the the Center for Demographic Policy of the Institute for Educational Leadership. Somebody from that organization was at the AAP annual meeting. And at the time, you know, there was there was data coming out showing that the um, the population of white people in the country was going to be dis, uh, decreasing and that um, other minorities, particularly Hispanics, Latinos and African-Americans would be increasing. And so I think the question at the time, which is still something that plagues the industry, is, OK, you know, we're moving towards um, a majority non-white society, but yet the industry remains majority white. How do we publish for people that aren't adequately represented um, within the industry? And I think that's I mean, that's still one of the in addition to just simply wanting to sort of have a more diverse workforce, you know, there is this question that hangs over publishing in particular, which is how do you publish books for a more diverse audience if you don't have a very diverse workforce? And I mean, the things that came up, I think, a lot in Calvin's story then kind of continue to come up. I mean, I do think you see more examples there of out-and-out racism. I mean, mm. you know, people talking about sort of instances 
you know, where you have executives saying things that are a bit more off color, I right. think, than um, you might expect. But I think at the end of the day, the issues that the story touches on, which is, you know, why, why do we find ourselves in this position, are sort of some of the same things now. I mean, we didn't have at that time, at, at the time the sort of 1994 story came out, there weren't hard statistics on the demographic makeup of the industry. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we do have something a little better now. But, I mean, one of the things that came up in the story is although the book publishing industry may not be doing quote-unquote worse than a lot of other sort of large industries on this front the big five have not released any demographic information about their workforce and some other industries some other big companies and other industries have done so granted they've done so under pressure of bad press um i mean the the main example would be some of the big tech companies, Google right. and Facebook, mm-hmm. recently mm-hmm. released information showing that I think 1% of their workforce is made up of African Americans. And that came on the heels of some press about why there are so few black coders in Silicon Valley. Mm. And I mean, again, you know, we asked for that information from the big publishers. They declined. I mean, they're under no legal pressure to certainly to release that information, but they haven't. Um, and so, that, you know, that's another thing that I think part of the problem with some of the efforts that happen around around diversity and, and particularly when you get into hiring is that there's not a lot of public information about the numbers. So, you know, you can say the industry's 80% white. And it, one thing to note, too, is not all the big five participated in the diversity baseline survey. Some right. did. Um, and our survey, too, is it depends on who decided to take yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, our survey, you, you know, especially there, you know, we that survey was sent to 5,000 PW subscribers, and I think we had a little over 400 responded. So, you know, it's a slice of a slice of a slice. Right. And, and the diversity baseline survey, again, much more comprehensive, but it's still a slice, um, you know, because you, you're looking at, you know, people who opted in um, in terms of providing information. So... You know, I think one thing is people, and and this this kind of comes up again and again, people definitely care about this and people are doing lots of things, you know, various things. And, you know, you can come forward and publicly state the programs you're involved in, but nobody really has to say this is what it's done. And you don't, nobody really knows where we're starting from and nobody knows where we're trying to go. So getting to a point where people and, and, you know, big corporations are kind of, pushed into kind of releasing real numbers and doing things like that, it's hard. Um, and, and it brings up issues about, do you want to do things like this? I mean, you know, one thing the story touches on is that, you know, I think affirmative action programs across the board have, you know, they're not what they once were, I right. think, um, you know, and there's there are legal reasons for that. Um, you know, quotas are certainly something in terms of hiring quotas that have been pretty much abandoned just because that can open a company up to to litigation basically you know if you if you came out and said as a corporation we're committed to hiring x number of latinos or african americans or, or whatever um whatever kind of thing and one if you don't hit those numbers that that could actually lead to a lawsuit and if you don't hire somebody then they could bring a, you know a white person theoretically could bring a lawsuit then saying I was not hired because for unfair reasons. So those are real issues that companies don't want to open themselves up to. But that being said, a lot of what we have now, I think, in the industry is 
we have things that are, you know, written into, you know, I heard a lot about like company vision statements, for example, which is basically, you know, you, all the big five have them sort of the the, sure. the core things that the company is committed to. Most of them have diversity in there, but like, you know, part of the problem is diversity is such a broad reaching kind of nebulous term, you know, and it does cover everything from, you know, it's not just about who you hire, you know, for a lot of publishers, it's about what you publish. Mm-hmm. So kind of moving away from the vague into something more firm. You know, I talked to one, somebody at one of the big five, a human resources um, executive who talked about the fact that, you know, there are ways that you don't have to use quotas, but you can have kind of more effective programs and you can have sort of internal targets and, Mm -hmm. and really firmer goals essentially without, you know, ever sort of committing to numbers of people or numbers of anything, but sort of saying like, these are our goals and to have those things be actionable, basically, you know, to have it, what this person was talking about was kind of moving away from something that comes down from a CEO, because too often, if it comes down from a CEO, it's not really enforceable throughout the company. But, you know, talking about getting the key executives at the company to sort of really say, you know, this is something you're responsible for, and you need to really carry it out. And then, you know, have that trickle down to their, you know, the people that they oversee. And then, you know, I think another thing that kind of came up is that when you when you look at some other industries that are probably have been better on this front, have been able to sort of diversify more in their ranks. Um, You know, people bring up things like, and this is anecdotal because it's pretty hard to get um, sort of demographic number from the census about this kind of thing. But when you look at industries like um, a couple of people are consulting, finance, insurance, where I think they're not um, as white as publishing. I mean, one of the things you're seeing is that they have different hiring practices, as as one HR executive explained to me, in insofar as, you know, a big company like that can go into, um, you know, they said, for the example they gave was like a historically black college or university, and they can hire, you know, 50 candidates or, or 60 right. candidates. They can hire a lot of people at once. And one of the tricky things about publishing is we don't hire that way. Um, right. You know, it's it's one person here, it's one person there. And I think one of the biggest problems with that kind of system, especially at the big companies, is when you get into that, you know, you can have in the background, you know, diversity being a priority. But I think one of the problems is, and this is a reality that extends beyond publishing, you know, there are issues of kind of endemic racism and and you know, studies have been done that show people tend to hire people who look like them and come from a background similar to theirs. So I think those kinds of things come into play more often than people would like, because again, you know, they're doing the hiring in something of a vacuum, whereas sure, you know, it's important, but at the end of the day, you know, you're looking at, um, you know, you're looking at X number of candidates and you're just going to go with the person in your gut, I think, who, who you think you know, it's going to be the best person for the job. Right. And this is very much a, a who you know industry, you know, the kind of industry where even if you're looking for interns, um, then someone says, oh, my niece is in this publishing program at NYU. She'd be a great intern for you. Right. And, um, you know, formal hiring processes still happen, but there's a lot of informal hiring processes, too, that, that magnify the effect of hiring who you know. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, we definitely got into that. You know, people say different things about that. I think, you know, one of the problems is everybody thinks, I think most people think that they 
are coming from the right place and they give everybody a fair shake, which I think I think everybody thinks they do do that. Mm-hmm. But um, at the end of the day, that's just not how life happens. Um, you know, and, I, you know, we, we heard from people, I think, you know, one... And I, I do think the big five publishers are really trying to upend this. I mean, I, they're trying to recruit different people into the industry. You know, they're definitely making efforts to um, bring in a more diverse candidate pool. Um, that being said, you know, I think too often what you said, Rose, happens. You know, you and, and I talked to one HR executive who said, you know, you can have somebody who says this matters to them all the time, but the reality is when the real world creeps in, you know, it, it's not going to be front of mind. You know, when you're dealing with somebody who says, hey, my godson, it, you know, right. just graduated from Harvard and is going to be great for this position, you know, that's what you do. And, and maybe you're even pressured to do that, you know, to a certain extent. Like, you, you know, it's it's who you know. And you know, people do debate this. I, I I heard a lot of HR people say this was patently not true, but um, I heard other people say that it's not an issue of race that comes up, but um, that the pup, that the industry still is sort of one very kind of caught up on issues of class mm-hmm. and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So right. that you know, it's it and. Again, HR folks told me that it used to be this way and it really isn't anymore. But I heard other people say, you know, that, you know, one one person from CUNY, which is the City University of New York, and they have a um, they have an undergraduate publishing certificate program that Mm -hmm. sort of caters to um, students probably from somewhat lower income um, backgrounds and like a more diverse sort of candidate pool, I'd say, than some of the other more popular post-grad feeder programs that tend right. to feed the industry, the, the two most popular being Columbia and NYU. NYU right. Again, focused on New York City. So what the some of the folks from CUNY told me is that they, you know, hear this term pedigree coming up a lot. Right. Um, you know, and it, it's hard to know. I, you know, I think, um, you know, one thing that happens in publishing is that, again, I, you know, it, it is sort of it can be a sexy industry to work in so you I think jobs are competitive so you know I think people are sometimes weeded out just on the basis of maybe where they went to college that kind of thing but again I mean there are differences of opinion on that people mm-hmm. people say that's not happening again I mean I think it comes down to the system in place that without internal targets and that kind of thing to hit I don't know how much change we're going to see and and I I think you have to keep in mind too that I brought this up, but, you know, I, I spoke to some independent publishers and, and by and large, I, I, you know, people seem to feel that the small publishers have made more headway on this front than the big publishers. And, you know, whether that's because they've been more committed and they're more passionate, I don't know. But I think one thing you have to think about is, you know, some of these small publishers, which can point to, you know, much more diverse workforce, you know, it's, yeah. it's really different when you have a company of 20 people versus a company of 20,000 right, or, or right. yeah, 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 um, yeah. you know, 10,000 or something. So that's, that's something to keep in mind. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye on it. Thank you so much for coming in and um, keeping us uh, apprised of what's going on here. And uh, I'm sad to say, I think you're right to be a little pessimistic, but <laughs> hopefully our industry will prove us wrong. Yeah. Well, hopefully change is possible. I think that's, that's what the story is bringing up. I think it's just a question of how it happens and, and who's who's going to lead the way, I guess. Well, thank you, Rachel. It's always great to have you on the show. All right. Thanks for having me. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Tom Hart, the creator of the book Rosalie Lightning, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another in-depth author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 